The economic barrier is, an, is a barrier that you can at least equalize on some way, right? Like if we're talking about $2 gets you a seat, that's pretty different, you know? So I felt really, really committed to that until the day we closed. And the problem is, is that if you're committed to that and your rent's doubling, <laughs> then it's like, who do you be? Who are you forced to become? Hello, Stud Stories listeners. This is Micah Sigourney, also known as Vivian Forevermore. I am so excited to visit with you for yet another episode. We have had a wild few months at the Stud. We closed our location at 399 9th Street and moved out right up until May 31st. And we had an online funeral that was really beautiful and wonderful. There have been great movements across our nation and the world for Black Lives. And then last weekend was Gay Pride, which was canceled in San Francisco, the official event, but there were several marches and demonstrations that were inspiring and beautiful. Those of you new to the pod, I want to tell you a bit about it. We are a queer history podcast that focuses on the stud bar here in San Francisco, through stories about the stud, we talk about queer history in San Francisco and the world. If you haven't yet listened to our previous episodes with Honey Mahogany talking to Susan Stryker and Aria Saeed about 1966 and the Compton's Cafeteria Riots, I strongly suggest it. Those are wonderful episodes. We talk to historians, DJs, drag queens, owners, workers, and patrons. The podcast is a chance to stay in touch with our community while also documenting the social and cultural histories of the stud bar and the queers that love it. And maybe you have never heard of the stud and you are thinking to yourself, who cares about just another bar? To which I say, the stud was founded in 1966 and that is three years before the Stonewall riots in New York, which fomented the gay liberation movement. It survived the AIDS epidemic and hosted legendary performers. Since our location at 399th Street is closed, we thought it would be great to talk with someone who has opened and closed a queer bar in San Francisco. So we invited friend Leela Thurkild to join us. Leela was the owner of the Lexington Bar, a dyke and queer bar that closed in San Francisco in 2015 after nearly 20 years. In the conversation with Leela, we talk about the stud in the late 90s and 2000s. During that time, there was a really big party called Tranny Shack. Both of us agree that the word is offensive, so we shortened the name of the party to T-Shack, though sometimes you might hear us slip up. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Leela. Okay, everyone, I am here with Leela Thurkild, who was the owner of the Lexington Bar here in San Francisco. Um, and Leela, we let people introduce themselves. So if you want to tell our listeners anything about you that will give them context or like also how you identify, what pronouns we're using today, all that stuff. Okie dokie. Hi there. Um, yes, it's true. I, I started and, and owned and ran the Lexington Club since its in, inception in, in 1997. And I now own Virgil Sea Room, which is a super fun place, but unfortunately shut at the moment due to current pandemic conditions. But I've been, I've been doing the bar nightlife thing for, golly, what is that like? over 20 years, 25? I don't know. I can't remember. 20, I can't add. 27, 23. 23, 23. years. See, yeah. you know. <laughs> okay, so um, we want to talk to you about 1997. Um, usually 
we focus on a specific date that's important to the stud's history. And in that year, there wasn't anything too spectacular, rather more out of the ordinary than usual, um, except for T-Shack, which was the long-running drag show thrown by Hecklina on Tuesdays, had their second ever pageant, which was not at the stud, but it had 1,200 people at it, which is bonkers for a second year party to throw a special event with 1200 people the year before in 96 it was thrown and it was like a line down the block wow um, was the first one at the stud I, the first one was at the stud and the second one was i do not recall where it was but i know the steve lady won the second one and i think nikki star run won the first one oh, okay. um yeah but you've been to t-shack a lot i bet yes i spent and then kind of insane amount of time there. I started dating somebody that was a really big part of it and performed there on a weekly basis. So Cass Holman, who is the person I dated, um, who was a a drag king known as Electro. And um, he was super close with Hecklina and everybody. So, I mean, I just got really close with everybody. Me and, and Cass would go up to Reno early with Hecklina and have a steak dinner before everybody got there. We didn't do the bus thing. It was more like a little family type of situation. Um, this was also right when, this was right at the time when, I think when Hecklina had like just gotten sober or maybe it was like getting sober. So like there were a lot of changes in the feel of what was going on in terms of the partying levels. But Hecklina aside, the partying levels were very high. And I definitely had, I mean, I had such, such crazy, amazing times. And um, in fact, one of our trips, uh, Steve Lady had gone up on the bus and couldn't handle it. So me and Cass ended up driving her back with us. <laughs> um, oh, wow. There were all sorts of wonderful things that happened. I had some of the best times in Reno and also just at the stud, like, I mean, I literally literally went there every single week. And Cass lived over uh, in South of Market. So, you know, her apartment was like a hop, skip, and a jump. I spent an incredible amount of time at the stud for a few years seeing some amazing perform. I mean, that's... uh, It was great. And, like, that's when I met Juanita and... Um, Just a lot of folks. And it was a really different scene for me because I hadn't... I'd been in a very like lesbian world and it was a very different mixed world. It was really a drag queen scene. And I mean, it was that whole T-Shack scene and there, there were women around and stuff, but it wasn't very different from the Lex and what I was used to, but it was so fun. And there was a lot of partying, a lot of sex, a lot of drugs, not that much rock and roll more. It was, although I feel like T-Shack had this incredible offbeat punk rockness to it and like performance art aspect of its drag show that was really fascinating. And Vin Santos was performing a lot then. So there were things that could just be like, it, oh, it, was, it was amazing. It was a special time. That's, I mean, it really shaped... Drag in San Francisco, I think. Like it can't be it can't be the drag in San Francisco is the way it is because of that event. Yeah. And the way the way people interacted with that event. Um 
from all the things I've heard as someone who didn't go there. Yeah. Um, which is weird. It's weird to have not been there. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also, I don't know, I'm a little older too. And I mean, there's a weird yeah. thing about me. I mean, I was so young when I started the Lex, but at the same time, I start, I kind of had this like social partying heyday right around, like just around when I turned 30. Like, you know, mm. when I first opened the Lexington Club, I was so scared that like I didn't really drink that much or party that much because I was like terrified that I would just become like an alcoholic instantly or a drug addict instantly that I I really held back for a few years. Like I wouldn't usually have, a, like at the very beginning, I wouldn't really have a drink until everybody left, you know, because I was just like really trying to keep it together, you know? So it was very yeah. different. And then once I kind of relaxed into it, like, you know, three or four years later, I was ready to let loose and, you know, be all over town and have a good time. <laughs> yeah. I can relate. When we started the stud, I stopped drinking. Yeah. Interesting. I was like, I'm, I need to be not the person working behind the bar drinking alcohol. Yeah. So I, I stopped. I haven't been drinking since we opened. Wow. Like on really on purpose. That was the reason. That's amazing. Yeah. It's a similar thing. Because I love a good time, but I also was like, <laughs> I need to be on top of this, right, this right. situation. Yeah. Um, since we just started talking about the Lex, let's talk about 1997. I want to get like a full, like all the questions about the Lex, but I want to play a little trivia about 1997 to like give context to what that was broader in the world. Okay. So I'm going to ask you some trivia questions. And if you get them wrong, you lose nothing. And if you get them right, you win absolutely nothing. <laughs> Okay, what major media outlet and online streaming video service started in 1997? Would it be YouTube? Close, oh, very close. Damn. I kind of, by saying media outlet, I think I misled. It's actually Netflix. Oh, shit, really? And that was when they were doing the, the mail order... Remember I did when Netflix that. started, you yeah. didn't yeah, you did mail mail order DVDs and stuff, and you get it in like a day or something, yeah. and it was a subscription. So that started in nineteen seventy. That's when it was conceived of in ninety seven. Wow. Um, okay, this one's maybe a little wordy, but in nineteen ninety seven, this social media CEO and founder was only thirteen years old and living in Dobbs Ferry, New York. But now he lives here in SF. Um, who is that social media CEO? Mark Zuckerberg? Yes, he was 13. <laughs> and oh. that year in particular, he was working on a family messaging service online called Zucknet. Oh, <laughs> damn. That's dirty. <laughs> Zucknet? Ew. Come on, his parents didn't stop him. Okay, and then which online classifieds platform started in 1997? Craigslist? Yeah. It seems like it should have been earlier. Yeah, right? I know. But you know, Craigslist was so big in SF. Yes. That's where I it's, first ever heard of it. And I, I actually first came here in like 2001, but Craigslist was still giant then. Yeah. But it also, it started as, it started by Craig Newmark and it started as an event listing yeah, service. Yeah, I knew that. And I wanted to start with those because they're all about, obviously, they're all about tech. And San Francisco has a mm. weird relationship with text, tech. Um, but also, like, just some non-trivia things that are, like, other stuff happening in 97 was Princess Diana, D Diana died. 
we had the OJ trial. We had Versace was murdered. Um, Titanic played in theaters. <laughs> um, and then in more gay news, Ellen came out on TV. Oh, I have a good story that about year. that. Oh, let's put a pin in that because I want to hear it. Um, weirdly, sodomy was decriminalized in China. Oh, thank the Lord. I know, right? In China. And then um, it was also the year of the murder of Notorious B.I.G. And then wow. it was also the invention or like release of the highly active antiretroviral therapy, also known as HEART, which became the new treatment standard for HIV, which caused a 40% decline in death rates Dang, of the AIDS epidemic. That's impressive. Isn't that bonkers? I didn't know that. Oh, and Mavi and Rose, that, that cute film about a young boy who loves girls stuff oh, yeah. maybe a young trip that came out so that was a there were some big things happened that year Context. but um the big the, right i want to talk about the lex opening what possessed you what happened what tell me the birth well it's funny i i came to san francisco in 94 and by way of like you know so i grew up in new york city so, I mean, I am like a, a city kid, but then oddly, I left New York when I was 17 and went to Iowa in the middle of these cornfields to go to a very small college there called Grinnell College. And um, it was a, like a radically different uh, environment in terms of just like the pacing of life in the Midwest and everything, But w- which was my, my purpose, but it was really different and it had a huge effect on me. I loved it there. Um, and then I moved with a bunch of people to San Francisco because all of my friends, I love the Midwest. I wanted to move to Minneapolis and I got totally outvoted by the way. Um, thanks guys. I do appreciate that now. (laughs) (laughs) Outvoted by your friends? Yeah. So my friends were all from the Midwest because I go to this small school in the Midwest. Mm. So everybody that goes there is from the Midwest. I'm the only like New York kid or city kid really. And so they're like, we want to get the fuck out of here. Why do you want to stay here? So they wanted to go to San Francisco. And I was like, all right, like, we'll check it out. You know, we, I, we went, came on our, me and we, we sent out a search party. It was me and my partner at the time and our friend Dusty. And we came on spring break to see what we thought of San Francisco. We stayed at the youth hostel at Fort Mason and oh, wow. just like walked around and like check shit out and went to the bearded lady cafe and, um, and went to the Castro and, and we had some friends in the East Bay, we went to the East Bay, but we didn't know that many people. We just like stayed at this youth hostel and wandered around for a week. And we were like, all right, cool. Like we like it. And we came back and told our other, the other few people in our group, like thumbs up, let's go. So we went. And, and again, when I, I came back, I, mean, I didn't even know where to stay. When we came back, I came, it was another search party. Me and my friend Mike came out and I got a one bedroom apartment. We stayed at the, again, at the youth hostel in Fort Mason because we didn't know, you know, anybody. <laughs> so far away. I know. Like at the end of the city. <laughs> I found a one bedroom apartment. We all, there was like five of us, all came into the one bedroom apartment when we moved here until people found other apartments. And got wow. settled. But yeah, it was a very like after college kid thing or whatever. Um, and was what, it? Yeah. Could you just like do that in 
what 94 could you just like find an apartment yeah. after college and be able to pay for it well, like that seems luckily, bonkers luckily there were so many of us and the, our my apartment cost 700 bucks a month and it was on Sycamore Street before the police station opened up there and it was wow. me and my girlfriend ha- lived there and she had a job she had gotten a job before we came so that was really cool. And I got work pretty quickly when I got here. And then we also had all of us staying there. So I think everybody chipped in for like the first month or something anyway. until And they found an apartment like the second. We had like four or five people living in that apartment um, for like a month or so. So um, it wasn't that hard to cover initially. Right. <laughs> but but you I had friends that were paying, you know, those big Victorian apartments that everybody lives in and has roommates and stuff. They were paying like 250 a month. It was crazy. Wow. You could find that easily back then. Easily. Really? Yeah. You didn't even you could work at a cafe 4 days a week and cover it and be a musician or an artist or you know like it wasn't that hard to get by in SF back then. It was just right. really really different. Um, okay. Yeah. And then what led to the Lex? Oh yeah, the Lex, that thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, the the um, so I well, the I guess the real thing is that there's two things, which is that one, I didn't because I kind of in my when I left New York when I was 17. I mean, even though I was queer much earlier and sort of semi came out pretty young in high school, um, I didn't engage with like queer culture or nightlife or anything because I was in Iowa like from when I was like 17 to 22 or something. So like there wasn't anything. You know, like, so when I came to San Francisco, it was like this big queer Mecca and we met a couple people, but like for women, it was all club nights kind of. There were some really cool ones that happened in bars that were smaller that I liked, but they were usually super packed and a little overwhelming, but there was a lot of like dance club stuff. And I'm not, I wasn't like a big dance club person. I was a really big bar person. And so it was not, even though I was like fascinated by it and loved it, it wasn't really my scene. Like I like hanging out at bars. So it was a little bit different. And so I was kind of on the, I kind of like pulled back from it a little and was on the edge of it. This really important thing happened to me at the stud. So this was in 1994. There was a club there called Junk and I think that that's right, and it was yep. it was a really cool club because it wasn't as like um, it was more punk rock. Like it wasn't as like you know, it wasn't as like dancey. Um, but of course, I wouldn't go on the dance floor. I wouldn't go anywhere over there. I just like glued myself to the pool table, you know. And I met uh, Sunny Hair that night. Basically, we just started hanging out and became like best friends and Sunny helped me open the Lex. Sunny also worked at the Bearded Lady and was like super social and like clued into the scene and stuff. So I met a lot of people through them and it was just awesome and so and wonderful. And we spent a bunch of years hanging out and then plotted around the Lexington Club. So that's one way that it got started was this this desire for a bar space where people could hang out 
And also a really big thing was something that was open every day. The bearded lady was a really big presence in the community when I when I was here. And it was a wonderful place, a, a cafe, but they they closed at like eight. And I wanted like a nighttime version of that. Without Where was the bearded lady? It was on 14th Street between Valencia okay. and Guerrero. Oh, okay. It's there's yeah, a yeah. hair salon there now. Oh, I forget the name of it. Um, yeah, I, I know. They do I know art show, cool art shows and stuff. I went there recently, but um, yeah, it was a really, really big part of the community. It was run by Harry Dodge and Silas Howard and Lori Hartman, and they okay, were just cool. like a force. And then later, Black and Blue Tattoo opened up right next to them, which was this sort of women-run, oh. lesbian-run tattoo parlor. Um, yep. I have a tattoo. I have two tattoos from there. Yeah. Actually. So there you go. But so that was big, big, pretty much it. I mean, the other thing that I was really lucky is that I had a friend from college who opened up a space in Albuquerque, New Mexico called the Anodyne. And it's a, it was, it's a big pool hall. It's a much bigger project. It's very huge. It's like a pool hall bar. And, um, my friend Suzanne Dutcher and, she at the time that she was working on the space. I mean, it took it, t- it took like a, like a year to build it out because it was a really huge project. Um, at that time, when I was in San Francisco, I was working construction, and okay. Um, so we talked a lot about what was going on, and at her place at the Anodyne when it was being built because I knew about construction stuff. And we even, my friends and I went down there a couple times to visit. And so I kind of watched this whole thing happen and then open. And so I had like, I had, you know, it's very rare, but I had like a female person do something like this. And it was really, really inspiring to me. And I was like, wow, man, like if Suze can do this on such a big scale, like maybe I could do this on a much smaller scale. And that's that's yeah. always a big thing is like watching somebody do something I think can have such a big impact. Yeah, absolutely. But mainly I used to hang out at this bar because I didn't want to go to the clubs so much. I just picked this, this, we picked this neighborhood bar called the Dover. It was in the women's building. It still exists. But it was back yeah. when it was in the women's building. It was an Irish bar, straight people bar. I just started going there because it was close to my house, all my friends started going there. And then sometimes some people, you know, we'd bring some queers there and stuff. And I just would sit there and think, God, I just wish this place was filled with gay women, you know? Yeah. And, and I was like, how cool would that be? Mm-hmm. And then I was like, you yeah. better get on that. <laughs> <laughs> was there a bar at the Lexington before the Lexington was yeah, there? Yeah, it, it was called the Lexington Club. So actually, oh. I... I <laughs> When I say the that I started, I should be started it. I should be careful because the name was actually that previously. It's obviously a reference to the street. It's on a tiny street called Lexington. So I have heard that that name was there. I, there's some debate about this, but I've heard that it was called the Lexington Club for a very long time. Um, mm. Other people say that maybe it was called something else, but I, I don't know. I've heard that it was called the Lexington Club since like the 30s. That's wild. And I now I'm gonna look it up. Um, so what was it like when it started? I mean you said it there weren't there were no lady bars, which is Lady so wild Bars. Too. Lady bars. Oh <laughs> 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 uh, it's like catch all lady terms. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> but there, like, I mean, Wild Side, was Wild Side West in existence at that time? Oh. Oh, never. We could skip No, Wild I Side mean, West I'm happy to talk about it, but I always feel weird. So Wild Side West was in existence, and I did go there, and it was fabulous. And mm-hmm. I loved it, but there was an unfortunate piece with Wild Side West that the people who ran it, I think, were who were lesbians, but, but, and owned it, but it was like of a different sort of time. So, so the wild side West kicked out two women for kissing. Um, and this was like early, I feel like this was like maybe 96. I'm not exactly okay. sure the year you can, you might even be able to find it cause there is some press on it, but, um, they they didn't want displays of affection or our culture or like the lesbianness. It was it was really difficult. So then some people went back and kissed again just to see what happened, and they were like, "No, you can't do that in here." Oh wow! And I did not know this. And then after that, a, a kissin was organized. It was like this thing. It was like you know what are those dances that people the mob mob scene dance or whatever. What are they called? Oh, like a... A flash uh, mob. A flash mob. So it's like all of a sudden, right, like on a Friday, wow, we've got more people in here than we thought and all these lesbians. And then like exactly at like 8.01, everybody just starts making out, you know? And it was just really interesting because they didn't identify that way and they weren't in a place where they felt like they could take on their identity. And I feel bad about it because I think that and I don't know the women, those women, the women who own that bar came into the Lex when it opened. They were one of the first people to have a drink there, like so excited we were there, you know, but I don't know them personally. And I think it was really hard. I think that they were, even back then they were quite older and I think they were up from mm. a different generation where you didn't tempt that kind of fate in terms of like getting into to trouble because they had, they had been through a lot. You know, and yeah. so it's sort of, I see it more as like sad than wrong, though it yeah. needed to be rectified and it was. But they also advertised in a lot of publications like like Damron travel guides were really big back then, like before mm-hmm. Internet, you would get like these gay travel guides and they didn't advertise as, as a lesbian bar. They advertised oh, okay. as gay friendly like they. So so. It's hard when a lot of people say, oh, what about Wildside? Because I'm like, yeah, but, you know, to come out and say this is a lesbian bar, this is a queer bar, it's different. And yeah. especially when people are having trouble doing that. And people don't think of the 90s as a time where that's an issue. Yeah. But guess what? Yesterday wasn't so long ago, and it was a fucking issue, and it wasn't that fucking yeah. easy. So there you go, you know. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know what to say about it, but I think it's it is sort of important for people to know about. Maybe. Um, I mean, also if it's it was written about, and it like the fact that there was a, a demonstration or a kissin, it's that's a really important. I yeah, think. it's interesting. I mean, there was also I met. I, we're not. I'm not even talking about the Lexington Club or the or anything, but. I met this woman (laughs) one time who owned a flower store on 16th kind of by church. I don't remember the name of it or her name, but she was one of the owners of a bar called Peg's Place, which was, so the last lesbian bar that I think was open uh, was Amelia's, I believe. And I think that closed, I, I, I don't know, like in like roughly 90 or something. 
And, um, but, but previous to that, there had been many, many lesbian bars at once in different neighborhoods and Peg's place was out in the avenues. And in the eighties, like, like, I think this was like the late eighties. Um, and this also, there are newspaper articles on, she showed them to me, um, off duty police officers went in there and beat up the women, women in there for being gay. And there was a huge court case and they they actually ruled in favor of like the bar and that they were harassed. And it was like one, it was actually kind of a landmark local case for like gay rights. And, you know, it's hard because you don't think of these things, but I, I don't know exactly what, I can't remember exactly what year the Pegs Plays thing happened, but say it was like 87 or something. Well, here we are in 95, not even 10 years later. Of course, the women at Wild Side West who lived through all that, who may have even been there that night at Peg's place Mm -hmm. are fucking terrified. Yeah. You know, so it's like, it's like, and then it's like easy for me to come along and be like, ho, like, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Young, young upstart. Yeah, like, (laughs) (laughs) let's go, Les. And just like get it, get it all on and be super vocal. I mean, I think that we just forget about what happens before us and the struggle, the importance of it. And um, I can only do what I'm doing because of the people before me, because I could have just been in their situation, you know? Yeah, So it's, it's kind of amazing. And um, yeah, and there hadn't been a, a, a lesbian bar in San Francisco for a long time. And there was really this idea. We A lot of us used to hang out at the Uptown, actually. That was kind mm-hmm. of a hot spot for queer women. And um, and everybody would talk about, like, I wish that there was a place we could go, like, every day, you know, instead of, like, third Sundays is this and this. And there were all these awesome clubs, like Red and Muff Dive and all these really – Great, great places. Um, there was a lot of leather stuff going on in the nineties. I don't know. It was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> when the Lex opened, I mean, like, what? What was the vibe? What was it like? Well, were you like immediately wall to wall? Lady time, <laughs> you know, like what was you and this word like, how, lady? Like, this word, lady. I just love the word lady. Oh it's just like, like all right, lady. <laughs> this is what happened. Yeah, exactly. You can use it. <laughs> no, yeah, women. Like, was fuck it yeah, it was women? it was wall to wall. Like immediately, like we, really? it was insane. Like my mom had come for the opening, and then. I didn't expect, I had to send my mom like to the bank to get change because like we didn't have enough. We had like gone through everything like the first night and then the second night it was so packed that like we couldn't handle it. And I had had to come in and, you know, and I was like, oh, I'm going to take this one night with my mom and uh, and I couldn't. We like went out to dinner and 15 minutes in I was at work. And then that was what it was like for me for the next 25 years. But did did that last for a while? It lasted. Or like, well, sorry, yeah, I just meant sort of being beholden oh, no, to work. Oh, no, I but know. yeah, what, I haven't always had that kind of level of busy, busyness in my businesses in life. But yeah, it's it's a it's a ride. Like for the first two years, we're super packed, super consistently busy, and then the sort of like uh, the, I think there was a certain like hipster cachet to it because maybe 
at that time that was kind of cool and it was also very in tune with like the sort of like working class you know flannelly 90s thing was a big lesbian look too and and then the hipsters kind of had the same look so we all kind of fit in together um and there was there was just a lot of there was a lot of appreciation and love for it in a lot of different places and it, it did really well like like I didn't have to think about it for like two years. And then it kind of leveled off and I had to start like working at it a, a little more, you know, and then and then there were lots of up and ups and downs over the years because, yeah, it was almost open. It was open for almost 20 years. I think it was like 18 plus or something. That's a long time. It is. And there's a That's lot a of really long time scenes like people's like, you know, there were a lot of different scenes that moved there like the people that hung out there at the end who were sort of the regulars then you know were almost two decades away from the people that hung out there in the beginning so it 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 really touched on went moved through a lot of a lot of different things which is really really cool that's rad yeah (laughs) i mean it's that's a long time and, and the nightlife, that's a long time, especially like, yeah, not a lot of people who go out into the nightlife don't do it for a, a huge part of their lives or regularly, at least. Right. Um, except for those of us that work in it. I feel like we we keep going. But um, uh, what, like, was there how what was like the cha- what was rather you talked about different scenes? Like, were there what was what were some of the different scenes that you saw or like what were the changes over time to like? the like the people who worked there or the people who attend who went there or how they engaged like anything like that right well i mean i want on the one hand there was always a there were some constants because it was the only lesbian bar in san francisco which is a very like gay city internationally known as a gay city so we always had you know, people from out of town. We always had a lot of tourists, national and international. We always had um, a lot of like uh, young gay people coming to, trying to find their scene for the first time, right? So like these were constants throughout from beginning to end. So that was kind of exciting. But in terms of like culturally, I mean, when we first started, I feel like the butch femme dynamic was super huge like people were like super femmy and super butchy and there wasn't a lot of in between it was also like that 90s like working class like it was just like a lot of like you know flannels like I said and stuff also it was a big like time for the SM scene in San Francisco so there was a lot of that going on and I mean I think we actually had like this bondage night where somebody would do bondage demonstrations um and do crazy elaborate like rope things that like took hours. I mean, it was really cool. Um, but we didn't do almost any event type stuff. Like that was a weird thing. Like um, we didn't really engage in that. We just kind of straight up were a bar. Um, so that was that was like the 90s. Also for me, like I was really involved in the music the local music scene in San Francisco. Like I played in a band, Sonny played in a band or two. And like, so we were, that's kind of how we became really close previous to it. And a lot of our um, scene was sort of split between 
the lesbian world and also this sort of like warehouse music scene in San Francisco that was going on at the time, which I also think probably also gave it some of that cachet around coolness because we were pretty hooked into like this straight musician scene that was that part of that scene came there there were there were straight people that came to the lex because they knew me or knew sunny or knew some of the people from that so it was an interesting you know it was like this sort of very like slightly pre-hipster thing Mm. and it was Mm -hmm. and we were kind of a part of that too like there were straight people that came there but they were like the straight people from like the sf like music scene. So that was really interesting. And that was in the nineties. And then around 2000, God, I mean, I can't even remember the history of everything for crying out loud. <laughs> well, just anything that stands out really like, a, cause I mean, San Francisco changed so much in the time that the Lex was open yeah. as well. And there were shifts in the culture. Like the mission was the, a place where you could see, like it was such a dyke neighborhood. And we also all refer to ourselves as dykes. That was like the big word in the nineties. It was your friendly neighborhood dyke bar. It later became your friendly neighborhood queer bar. That was our slogan on our ads in the guardian that went from, why did that change? Sorry. Oh yeah. No, I mean it because, because our world changed and the language changes. I mean, the same reason why we go from tranny shack to tea shack, right. Out of respect. And it's, it's hard sometimes when you're referring back and there's, you know, issues around pronouns with that for me and all sorts of things. And and we make mistakes, but ultimately we're trying to speak in a way out of respect. And it was absolutely out of respect. I mean, our culture changed so much as a as a queer community and a gay community in San Francisco like there was a huge uh trans movement and I feel like that was hap- a lot of that happened in the Lex you know a lot of people started to transition and not everybody was supportive of it but we were like super embracing of it and even previously to it being super present I would say like even in like the dyke culture like I remember the folks from there was like a train, this fellow Christopher in it, and I think, was it Shauna Virago? I don't know. So there were two people who ran the Transgender Film Festival. And I think they had it at the Roxy, and it was in its early years. And they could not get like a gay bar to let them have an after party there. And serious, yeah, like I think they were like having this was in the 90s, I think, in the late 90s, I believe. I I could be wrong though, and I I might be a little wrong about the story, but I know they were having problems. Like, people like just kind of didn't want to have anything to do with it. And I remember them approaching me, and I was like, oh, hell yeah. And like, this was even before, like, even in my own personal consciousness around trans stuff, you know, in my community, I was, was as it later became, but like it, we were like, totally, that'd be awesome. And they had their like opening night after party at the Lex. I think they did it two years and they were just really thankful. And I was really surprised at how thankful they were. And also maybe because, and I may be slightly off. I mean, maybe they didn't have as much trouble, but maybe people wanted to charge them a lot of money or weren't as giving, you know, I mean, that was, yeah. you know, sometimes that things can be different with us. Like we never charged a cover. We never, so anytime somebody wanted to like bring a bunch of people in, you know, if we supported what it was, it was open arms and, and maybe that was just a different experience for them. I, I'm not, I, I don't want to speak for them, but I, I remember it being tough for them. And 
being like, you know, let's do this. But anyway, um, that was exciting. But then also culturally in our community, things really started to change. And a lot of people started to explore, you know, even before transitioning, a lot of name changing, a lot of different identity stuff. And that became a really big, there was really a place for that at the Lexington Club. And I've always been really proud of that. Um, and that's, that's pretty cool. Also, I feel like there was a, a real movement towards this less, less gendered identity in general, like more of a, there's sort of always a swing, I think that goes back and forth around that. And, you know, I, I came up in a time that was like super butch femme and I had a really like femi, really femi girlfriends and stuff. And then when I got older, you know, my, my taste changed and maybe it came into my own a little bit more than sort of mirroring the culture a hundred percent. I wanted to ask, you had said that you um, went to, to T-Shack a lot. And yeah. I'm curious if there was like crossover between the crowds, between the Lex and T-Shack, uh, because T-Shack happening at the stud and like you said that you met Sunny at the stud. And I like to think of the stud as a queer bar through time. Right. Um, it has kind of a legacy of being not just a gay man bar or a gay male bar. Um, and so I think it's like, its volume of queerness has probably changed over time and and all of that. But so I'm curious, because I actually just saw one of Peaches Christ's short films and it was shot inside the Lex. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love Peaches. And so I, know, see, I just I wonder don't think, about that. I, I, I was so connected to that community for a long time. And it, it's something that I don't, it was so long ago. It's just like, I don't know if anybody really knows about it, but there was crossover and it was amazing. And, um, a lot of the the people there would come in and visit at the Lex and even do um, the, 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 the wonderful lady Sergio, I think, hosted some parties. And and I I mean, people from Trannyshack probably hosted a couple parties, I think. I know Lady Sergio did. There's probably other people, too. And um yeah people would come in and hang out it was it really did sort of bridge a gap a little bit and I also think that it it brought a lot of Lex people to T-Shack like there was a lot Mm -hmm. more of that going on because at that time too personally like I said I was having sort of a a social partying renaissance in my life and I was going out a lot and I was going to a lot of events and and so I would go to like every club and everything. And like, so when that, when you, when you're all over the town like that, you know, it's just different. And, and you get group, oh, we're all going to this, this night, come by. So like that was happening for T-Shack. And like, so a lot of folks from, from the Lex were, were coming to that and people from there were coming over. Um, another, another crossover thing South of Market that is very interesting and also goes back to uh, that sort of music scene connection is that I spent a lot of time uh, previous to to my stud time, that major stud time, at like the Hole in the Wall and the Eagle. And um, it was because, so Sonny and Caroline had been on tour with a band in Europe and they were on tour with this band that had this fellow from San Francisco, this other band that had this fellow from San Francisco in it. And his name was Doug Hillsinger. 
And I don't know if you know Doug, but he was a bartender at the at the Hole in the Wall and then at the Eagle forever. And he started the whole Thursday Nights Live at the Eagle. And he is one of the best people fucking ever. And anyway, so he... So what's funny is that they were on tour with him and they were like, oh, there's this guy from San Francisco. And I guess, I don't know if I should be telling other people's stories, but I guess like Sonny had like this, uh, like one of those Damron type books, like those like gay guides to Europe. And Doug was like, oh, hey, can I take a look at that? Like one night, (laughs) because he's like a big dude with a beard, you know, and like, and, and she didn't read him as queer. And and he was like, oh, can I borrow that? And she was just like, holy shit, man. <laughs> and or he, see, I'm pronouncing weird because I, I don't know how to do it in history. So apologies for that. So right. anyway, um, so that they were like, holy shit. But also he's an incredible, like literally like out of this world musician, like really amazing. So when they all came back from tour and they were here, Sonny and Caroline wanted to go ask him to start a, to be in a band with them, to start a band. But they didn't really know him. But they knew that he worked at the Hole in the Wall. And they made me go with them. And we, the three of us, <laughs> go to the Hole in the Wall. We, like, find out what night he's working, right? And they're like, this is so cute. And they're like, can we talk to you, you know? And they're like, Do you, will you start a band with us? <laughs> and he was like, all right, sure. And, like, it was so cute. And, like, there we are, like... This is like fucking, I don't know what year that is. Like, I don't even know if the Lex was open yet or not, but it was really close to all that time. And we're like at the hole in the wall with that wax candle that at that time was not that big. It wasn't that big yet. And like, (laughs) like talking to this guy, but like, it's like intimidating in there. It's all dudes. There's never any women in there. It's like this leather South of Market bar. But then he's so sweet and so cool. And they don't always be like, oh, you guys should come back and hang out with me. So like basically we started going to the hole in the wall all the time because he worked there. And then it was also kind of like really fun and dirty. And, you know, they didn't have they had, you know, the bathroom. There was a trough and a toilet all in one room. And then they finally put in a little curtain for the toilet and I remember going there with people. They wouldn't go in the bathroom, like with women, and they wouldn't go in the bathroom. They go pee in the alley because they were too scared to go in the bathroom. I loved going in the bathroom. I was like, any chance I can get. And I had a few really. So I used to hang out there kind of a lot, and there weren't very many women ever there. But um, but I went there, and I took dates there and stuff. And and uh, I remember taking a date there. An old girlfriend of mine, Ursula, who's really beautiful, like kind of high femme, and or especially at that time was, and Doug was working, and we walk up, and I'm like, let me, I'll take a beer, and I was like, what do you want to Ursula? And she's like, I want a Cosmopolitan, 90s, 90s, and Doug's like, oh, okay, what's in that? And I was like, oh, it has vodka triples i don't remember what the fuck is in a cosmetic what and lime juice and and <laughs> splash cranberry right. right so yeah. he's i'm telling him and he's pulling out everything and putting it on the bar and then he looks at me and goes you make it and walks away <laughs> at the fucking hole in the wall because they don't fucking That's make cosmopolitans hilarious. there so you made me make the fucking drink for my date <laughs> 
so <laughs> it's so badass. I know <laughs> it is, and like there's this whole. Th- but I mean, everybody. I mean, he's just an, a beautiful person, an amazing person, and he did so much. And he introduced me to John and Joe, who own the Hole in the Wall. And when they took over the Eagle. It was actually um, right around the time that the Lex opened. I think that they opened shortly after, or sh- it was like oh maybe the same year. I don't know. But the Eagle. Yeah. The, the well the there when they took over the Eagle. The Eagle's obviously got it, got been it. open for way longer than that. But right. when John and jo- okay. when the owners of the Hole in the Wall, John and Joe, bought the Eagle, it was right around then, and and they were really good to me and. They used to come in the bar. They used to ride their Harleys with the Rainbow Motorcycle Company or Motorcycle Club, and they'd bring their whole crew, and they'd come by the Lex, do shots, pound them in the mahogany bar and make dents in the permanent dents in the bar, and they were fucking great. And then they would go off and visit Malcolm and Robert at El Rio, you know, before Don owned it. And it was like a really cool... Like, it was just really cool. And I always felt sort of like a sister bar thing with the Eagle. And we started to hang out there a lot when they took it over because we already knew a lot of those bartenders and stuff. So we spent an insane amount of time at the Eagle back then. What is, like, I've, so, like, I'm curious about how the clientele reacted because I've been in the Eagle, like, even within the last five years with women who, and had clientele be, like, shit to them. Um, yeah, I which mean, is like an unfortunate stereotype of like a leather dude is that he doesn't like women, but like I've experienced it. I think that it was, well, first of all, it was different ownership. So in the last five right. years, it's not the same people and it's not the same people behind right. the bar and stuff. But I think there was, a, I don't know, those guys were always so good to me, like the owners and, um, and then Doug was there and Maddie and a bunch of Pete bartenders who all just mm. loved us. And the clientele just started to warm up. And when Doug started the Thursday Nights Live, it was a real integrating factor. Like, it was very interesting because there was a lot of queer bands, but there were a lot of straight bands that played there, too. And not everybody went there, the regular clientele on those Thursday nights, partly because sometimes it would be so packed it was out of control and it wasn't where they wanted to be. But we hung out there Friday and said, I remember fucking, I had my, we had birthdays there all the time. I had my 30th birthday there and I got 30 fucking ass slaps, uh, like, you know, admit or whatever by like guys there. I mean, I don't know. So, I mean, we got along. I mean, there was a lot of women hung out there during that time period, that like sort of very late 90s, early 2000s, it, it was very integrated. And yeah. it was a, it, there was a family connection in a weird way between the Lex and, and the Eagle back then. And it was really, really mm-hmm. cool. I mean, another strange thing, I'm just not even talking about the Lex or anything, but another strange thing is that when John and Joe were ready to move on from the Eagle and wanted to sell it, I tried to buy it with mm-hmm. Doug and Ron, who is the manager at the time. So, and this was a really weird, when was that? What? It was it was a year previous to when it became public. Because basically, what Got happened it. was that John and Joe wanted to sell it. I heard about it. I called Doug, and I was like, "Dude, what's going on?" And he was like, "I don't want them to give it up. I want to try to buy it." And I was like, "Well, me and you need to buy it then." And we got, and then Ron, who was the manager at the time, 
was also part of it. He was like, we need to have Ron in on. So the three of us approached the owners and they were like, great. Like we're, you, we want you guys to have it. Cause you guys are like, you know, family, like you're who we want the bar to go to. And we signed a contract. We went into escrow. We were buying the Eagle and we were going to like have it go on. And then we got into all this shit with the landlord. He wouldn't lease it to us. Everything fell through. And then and it went on for like months. And then everything fell through. And then um, it happened again. We had like, they were like, okay, now he was like, let's go back into negotiations. And so we spent another, basically over, it took a, I was in it for a year. We thought we were going to buy wow. it. And it was really intense. And then when the landlord finally, finally said, no, I'm not going to let you rent it. Um, it was actually me. So it was actually me on stage at the Eagle with John, the owner, talking about what happened. I don't know if anyone even knows this or whatever, but like when the Eagle, the day that the, it was announced that the Eagle was going to close, it was me and John on the oh, wow. stage announcing it and explaining what happened. Wow. And... um. And then all this stuff came out and everybody was like upset and all these things. But what I don't know if anyone really realized was that for a year, John and Joe were trying to get it to the people that they that were like family and that they had worked for them for years and and me and, you know, they were really trying to pass it on. And and it was the landlord that didn't allow them to do that. I'm not a very... um, look at me, look at me type of person publicly, you know? Right. But there's definitely like a lot of things that I've like done or been involved in. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes I wonder about, you know, is that something that I, to my detriment in the community? Because if I, I'm just not that type of person, but I feel like my voice is not as present as maybe sometimes I'd like it to be because I don't throw myself out there in a big way, but I think I do a lot of big stuff and I just kind of hang back, you know? So it's sort of weird, which I'm way more comfortable with. But then sometimes I'm like, I do have a lot to say, but I don't know. So anyway, I think that's something I think about a lot lately or for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) For a long time and a lot lately. (laughs) Um, let's talk about the end of the Lexington and why it closed okay. and what that was like. The Lexington closing fucking sucked. Um, <laughs> it was it was very complicated and weird. I mean, basically, you know, the real story is that my landlord was a fucking asshole. And he was okay. he was coming for me. And it was really hard for me to talk about that at the time because I was in the middle of all these negotiations and I couldn't really talk about it. And to be honest, that's kind of a lot of what happened. And he had sent me a letter. All but, So I was supposed to have another five-year option. You probably know, might know what options are. But like usually you have a lease and then you have a, an, an option and you can decide whether or not to stay that extra time. And I was supposed to have another five years 
And he found a loophole in the option, sent me a letter and saying, we're not going to allow you to exercise your option. You're on a month to month rent and your rent is doubling. So this was, this was like three years before the Lex closed. So at that, Oh wow. Yeah. So at that moment I was like, I'm fucked. Like they just read that, that story on the cover of the Chronicle that said the rents in San Francisco are skyrocketing, especially for commercial spaces on the Valencia corridor. And like, they're like, oh yeah, like get her the fuck out, you know? So that's actually what happened. And I lost my mind. I called my lawyer. We did all this stuff. He was like, they kind of, they have you, they found a loophole. Like we can fight it, but they're going to win. And he was like, I think we should just try to negotiate and we went in this whole thing. We spent six months negotiating, and I got three more years out of them, and that was it. Uh, but at the doubled, at the yes. doubled rate, or oh, and admittedly, like my rent was punch. low. It was low, but but still, but it changes for, business, right? It for ch- us and what we're used to surviving on and working with, doubling is a lot. So. I negotiated, so this is three years prior to the Lex closing. So I ne- take six months, negotiate this thing where I basically say, okay, I'll pay double rent and I only get three a three-year lease. So mm-hmm. I knew it was over, basically, because I was like, they don't want me in here. Like, they're trying mm-hmm. to get me out. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they could have called me and said, look, we feel like your rent's low. Like, we know you have this option. Like, what do you want to do? I mean, they could have talked to me. They didn't talk to me. So I, I, I saw the writing on the wall. And then, you know, that writing on the wall is my landlords pretty clearly wanting me out of there. But the reason why they want me out of there is an economic climate, right, that's happening that we're all, like, kind of pretty aware of. I mean, to different extents in the moment, but certainly – retrospectively looking back at it, like things were just getting so expensive and rents and housing prices and things are jumping. The displacement really start is really going on, starting to go on pretty heavily. And people who are, can't afford to live in San Francisco and are moving to Oakland, because that would have been back in what, like 2010? No, 2012, something like that. I can't, I can't really remember, but somewhere like that, like <laughs> around then. And um, so really, it was like, I kind of knew that something was coming. And that was sort of when I was like, I'm worried, all my eggs are in one basket, I better open another bar, just in case. Mm. And like, I'm really interested in this idea. I mean, this is just a little Virgil's thing, but I'm really interested in this idea of these parties. Like I was looking at like Hard French and other parties where that were super mixed. And I love this idea of this, like like you were saying with the stud of like this more, and, and the Lex had become more that way too a little bit, but I, I liked it even more where it's like straight people, queer people, like lots of different types of people, people of color, something way more integrated and mixed. And like, you know, I was really interested in, in a spot like that and, and creating a permanent spot like that. And bizarrely, it almost reminded me of what it was like to go out to bars in San Francisco before there was a lesbian bar because that's actually what it was sort of like. You know, it's like we don't have our own space, but then returning to this time purposefully of that intermingling, you know, like I remember these nights at the Uptown with all the like hipster straight kids and all the queer dykes sitting in the back of the couches and they would play, you'd play pool with each other because your name's on the board, you know, and then you'd have drinks and then everybody's, you know, so it's kind of cool. 
But anyway, so I started, started that project. The thing that was kind of a bummer was that the first couple years after that letter, when the rent doubled, we're going really well at the Lex, like, like, like better than I had expected. And I thought, man, maybe this is sustainable because mm. I'd really like to keep this place forever. Like it was never meant, I just like wanted another place. And and after all the Eagle stuff, I kind of set myself up actually in the structure of the business. Like Ben was doing a lot more stuff and was being really amazing. And Ben and I talked a lot about structuring things differently when the Eagle stuff was happening. So I had kind of set myself up to have time to have another business back because of that. So like I, right. it was like a whole weird thing. And, but But things were going really well at the Lex. And I thought, gosh, maybe I could like have both of these forever. Maybe I can keep the Lex forever. And now that I don't, I'm, I'm getting this other bar open and I opened the other bar. Like I was like, I don't have all my eggs in one basket. You know, maybe I could get to a place where like, this is just going to work, you know? But then right at the end, it was really hard because in that kind of last year, there was a huge shift in who was living in San Francisco. The dis- the level of displacement was so huge. And I really felt like my landlord was not, they had continued to be pretty difficult. And mm-hmm. I was pretty sure they were going to kick me out. And there's only one opportunity to sell and it's while well, you still have a lease. <laughs> and so... I just decided and and our sales had gone down and things had started getting a little bit wobbly and I just thought they're going to fuck me you know and to be honest they almost did I I mean I sold that bar I mean I know everybody like you know they don't they, they get kind of I don't know maybe people are, are anti the new people owners and all these things but I mean I sold it they didn't kick me out. They didn't, you know, I took advantage of a situation that I felt like was like doomed because of my landlords. They weren't going to let me stay there. You know, like it was pretty clear. There had been a hell of legal stuff going on in the background that no one knew about. They were trying to get me out. I wanted to get out with in the best way I could. I worked that business almost 20 years. I wanted yeah. to get out with something, you know, and right. it's true. And I sold it and I took the chance to sell it before they kicked me out. And even during that process, we had to extend escrow four times because the landlords would refuse to return calls. So even right. when I got to that point, they almost did not let me sell it. Which is just such yeah. a, like, I've been here for almost 20 years, pay the rent on time. I fix everything up. I take care of everything. And they're just like, no. Even when I ha- I'm handing them, that was the other part is I knew they wouldn't let me. Pa- I did approach a couple of people in the community, but and they didn't want want to have it. But they weren't going to let me um, sell, sell it to an unqualified, unexperienced buyer. That was the other really hard part that was hard to explain about it was that, they were such jerks. They barely let me get through that sale with like the most qualified people in the city. And like they weren't, if I was like these people from my community, he would have laughed in my face. Like right. I wouldn't have happened. Well, and the same thing with the Eagle, right? John and Joe, who had owned the Eagle for like 16 or 17 years, wanted to pass it on to like a friend and some 
longtime workers, and that was their choice of who they wanted to continue to run it. And the landlord said no. I don't what, feel like how giving it. How can the landlord say no? Like, what's I the won't give you a lease. There? Right. I won't sign a lease with you guys. Right. We qualified financially. We qualified with experience. We qualified with everything. Everything's in escrow and all set up. He's like, I don't feel like having you guys as tenants. I mean, even a residential landlord could say, I don't want to rent this to you because of whatever totally. reason, but or I like someone better. But this is a different thing with business. But So business leases are more like a contract and there's no protections at all. Everything that any protection you have is in that contract. That contract covers the relationship. And Usually the way that it works is that they give you a certain amount of time and then they may give you an option to extend for that amount of time. And usually that option is is the right of the leasee, uh, the renter has the right to extend that option. So there's just no protection. I mean, it's it's, I don't know, it's just the contract itself. Everybody is facing that situation right now. I mean, everybody from me to the stud to like every signal place right now to like huge corporations. Like someone was just telling me about the gap, not paying rent to this, this huge organization that does like all these owns all these like giant malls, you know, and that they're going to be in, they're like an illegal battle, you know? So it's like also the Oakland A's right now. I mean, they're, they, they stopped paying rent at the Coliseum for a minute. I heard, I don't even large corporations facing issues with leasing just because we're, in this pandemic, but it's very scary. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. That's a whole other thing. But oh, no, that's so, but I mean, I think what's, in, what's really interesting about what you said um, is so then like you have people who are like historically disenfranchised or whatever, queer people, mm-hmm. um, people of color, uh, however, um, and who, who use businesses mm-hmm. as like cultural centers. Yes. Right. And so then, but then they're in this legalistic legal, uh, landscape that's different from like a, say like a renter, like a renter's right, or, you know, what, what have you. Um, like, like the Lex is, was a cultural center. Mm-hmm. It was the Dyke bar of San Francisco for almost 20 years or 20 years. Um, and it's like, and then it's also, and it's in the landscape of like hypercapitalism, especially in San Francisco, as the as the rents changed for everyone, like hypercapitalism, they just wanted to double your rent because they could right. situation, and like so then like it's a cultural hub that's 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 being treated the same as like the Gap right. actually, right? And that's that that um, sounds out of whack to me, right? Like. Um, that these places where queer people gather because there's and historically haven't had other places, but are, yeah, I don't know. It sounds yeah, out of balance. It's, it's, there's a really big problem with commercial, like small business and commercial leasing and lastability and legacy and stuff like that because it's it's a complicated formula and like for me like one of the things that i always like one of the things that i always sort of spouted from the beginning and all along was that it was sort of accessibility through affordability you know so like to me i always had like super cheap drinks i mean i think making money was never <laughs> at the forefront of that project for me. I mean, there were times I did and there were times I didn't and all sorts of stuff. But like, you know, 
it was really important to me to have super affordable drinks. It was really important to me to like have events. I mean, the place was tiny, but events where we never charged to get in. So it's like, if you want to come in and drink a soda or drink a PBR for $2 and be a part of this community, your access is not limited by the affordability of it. And I think that that's like a huge, huge thing. Because even though I wish that it was more of a diverse space in some ways, I feel like the economic barrier is an, is a barrier that you can at least equalize on some way, right? Like if we're talking about $2 gets you a seat, like yeah. that's, that's, that's pretty different, you know? So I felt really, really committed to that until the day we closed. And the problem is, is that if you're committed to that, and your rent's doubling, <laughs> then it's like, who do you be? Who are you forced to become? You know, because mm-hmm. it starts to then go against like the way that I want to represent myself and my business. Because okay, we could have stayed and started having fifteen dollar cocktails, but guess who's going to come in? Right. Not my community. And then we wouldn't right. be a lesbian bar anymore. Like, yeah. and we would have had a, a fabulous straight cocktail gar- bar in an amazing location. And I would have made tons of money, but right. I didn't, wasn't willing to do that. I mean, to be honest, that's what I felt like I was faced with in that moment was like, I know how to run a bar. I already just opened another bar. I can turn this into a cocktail. Like I, I could stay here and turn this into a cocktail bar. It's right off Valencia. It's an amazing location and make tons of money. But it's not going to serve my people, and I'm not willing to fucking do that right here. Like I, this is it. If it's not the Lex, it's nothing. And I like I kind of don't love saying like negative things about capitalism in like super broad and general ways because it's super easy. But the goal of capitalism is to make all the money you can, as opposed to just enough, right? So like, like that's like the ethic. Like is like, of course the landlord. Not of course, but like. When hypercapitalism, as I would call it, like hit San Francisco with the tech booms, all of them, several yeah. of them, it knocks out the idea that like, well, we could just get by and like getting by is great. Like getting by and having a good time at a bar is important. And like, and and it's not just about like, like, like the idea of like closing the Lex instead of becoming this other thing that was about the money instead of being right. what it was, which was about people is like important and like for the stud we cooperatives have this this idea that you can have multiple bottom lines like your bottom line isn't just money and it's explicit within like cooperative structures and that's something we talk about a lot especially with our closing is just that like look we could either sit here and get into a bunch of debt and really put our future in peril um or we can close now so that we can open again later and our bottom line being like that we open for our people as opposed to like deciding that it's only about the money or the whatever it's like we just want to be able to open for our people we're we were also not a bar that was making all the profits in the world right Right, (laughs) we're trying to just like stay just above so we can stay open and like pay our employees right Um, yeah which is not how people run businesses no i mean i i it's weird though i mean there are some though and i think that that's the difference between like community and small businesses and stuff it's like there are plenty of business, small businesses that are run like that, whether they intend to or not. You know what I mean? Like Because certain businesses are never going to make tons of money. I mean, that's why sometimes people who like own a corner store might own like three or four corner stores. Because a corner store 
is not in itself going to generate and it there i mean it, there's just there's a limitation to certain things and and so actually i think that things are more like that and whether it's purposeful or not i mean even to say it's not purposeful i don't know like sometimes being in a situation like that where you're going you're going just above you're getting just a little bit on top is so much better than every other situation that a lot of people are in that that that's a great situation you know like i think that 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 in terms of the world like there's a lot of small businesses and most of them are not like raking it in, you know, and for the people that really want to be, uh, make a lot of money off of it, they usually own multiple ones. But the idea with most people who, who own small businesses is to have their own little piece of something and that there actually is a ton of, I, I'm just doing a little better than getting by. And I think that yeah. it's, it's, it is a part of our culture and it is there and it's a, actually huge and yeah. that it's wonderful, you know, and that a lot of those places, like, I mean, even, I don't know, like my mom just told me that the corner store in our corner in Manhattan is closing after, I don't even know, decades and decades. And there are people that have worked there for decades. And, you know, it's like they're even in a huge city. It's a small microcosm community, that corner store, you know, like everybody knows everybody. Everybody says hi. All these things like, you know, and that 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 we talk about, we, we're just obsessed with our communities because we're queer. But... Those communities exist in little ways everywhere, everywhere. My corner store here, my the guy with the blue eyes that always says hi to me. I mean, <laughs> but like, you know, it's like those are all just little communities and we are doing that everywhere and they're so vital and it, they're, it's, it does exist, you know, and without even trying. And I think that, that people yeah. who are in those environments like those environments, but they just may not be as like um, intentional as we are in our like obsessive, like self-reflective, like, I'm not trying to accuse you of anything. I'm really talking about myself. Um, <laughs> I'm with you. You can put me in that we. I'm inside that we. I don't you. know. I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting. I'm really into that. I've been really like... I've been really like getting down with my neighbors lately <laughs> and I've made a lot of relationships that were already there a lot stronger in the last couple of months. And it's, it's really meant a lot to me. Is there anything you want to tell me about the Lex or San Francisco in 97 or <laughs> that you haven't yet? Oh, the Ellen thing. Oh yeah. Let's talk <laughs> yeah. about Ellen. So 1997, Ellen yeah, comes tell me out Ellen. on national television. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, so she's such a weirdo now. Uh, she's so weird. Um, the yeah, so in 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 1997, Ellen came out, and the thing that's cool. So we opened in January of 97. So we were open that whole year, just being obsessed with that year as you are, mm-hmm, pretty much mm-hmm. whole year. Um, <laughs> Great. <laughs> so all that stuff happened while we were open. Um, wow. But I remember. Everybody, like, we were at work, and everybody, like, wanted to watch it, and we oh. didn't have a TV, and we went, the corner store, the guy at the corner store across the street had a TV, and we asked him, we asked him if we could borrow his TV, and it was really old, like, with dials, 
And we brought the TV into the Lex and we put it on top. We put something on top of those garbage cans. You know, there were those garbage cans right on the edge there. I don't think we put it on the bar. We like stacked some boxes, put it on there and plugged it in because it was on like a network, you know, like a like a network. So you could like a. Yeah, yeah, ABC, like ABC or NBC. NBC or yeah. And then we had bunny ears. There were bunny ears. And there was this crazy thing where we couldn't. And the place was like packed. And we're all watching this tiny like fucking television from 1978 or something. And the thing was that the me and Sonny had to like hold the bunny ears in this really awkward position. Like we had to like, you know, like one leg was touching the refrigerator and the other hand was at the top of the bunny ear and we had to like freeze for like a half hour or whatever holding this thing so that we could get the reception and watch it i mean it was so diy or i don't know what it was it was just so ridiculous and people were just so happy 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 and excited was it was there a crowd for that? It was a huge I mean, was crowd. And I don't even know why they came there because they know we didn't have a TV. <laughs> but they came and we borrowed the TV from the corner store. And me and Sonny acted as human antennas, attaching ourselves to the bunny ears and watched Ellen come out along with, you know, 75 of our best friends and regulars. And that's that's really cheered great. and, you know, drank all night. That's all. I love that. Leela, it is such a pleasure to always talk to you every time we talk. I love it so much. Thanks so much. I love talking to you guys, too. This has been such a wonderful distraction for me and so fun. And I get to see your faces, which is just beautiful. And I love it. Thanks for spending time with me. That was Leela Thurkill talking to us about 1997 and the Lexington Club. Thank you all for listening to Stud Stories. If you liked this episode and want to make sure you hear all the future Stud Stories we have for you, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to us. Also, if you have it in you, why not just give us a little ranking on iTunes and write some some wonderful reviews that helps us to get even more followers and reach queers across the world. If you really, really want to support the Stud, please subscribe to our Patreon account. Patreon subscribers get advanced access to our episodes as well as behind-the-scenes content from our weekly drag show, Drag Alive. To get your very own stud sweatshirt or to find out about our new merch and other stud updates, visit our website, studsf.com. Since we can't party with you in person right now, join us every Saturday at 6.30 p.m. for our weekly virtual drag show, Drag Alive, which is at twitch.tv backslash dragalive. Stud Stories is produced and edited by Tara Haywood. Ben McGrath is the production manager. And I am your host, Vivian Forevermore, also a producer of the show. Researcher for this episode was Ben McGrath, and our music is by Paige Turner. We hope to see you soon, or at least visit you inside your ears. Bye. <laughs>